So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the sixth chapter, just the 20th verse. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And may the Lord bring this text alive for us this morning. Let's ask him to bless us in that way. Dear Lord, these are very familiar um, verses, very familiar phrases. Um, We study them in the book of Matthew and now again in the book of Luke. So, dear Lord, I pray that you will open them up for us, that we won't simply close our minds because we know them or we think we know them, that um, your spirit has an important message for us, both those who know you and those who don't. This morning from this one simple verse, may, may it speak loudly to our hearts and to our minds, and we will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I just mentioned in my prayer, we're getting ready to move into some specific teaching of Jesus. We've been talking about the kingdom of God all the way through the book of Luke. It's, it's a central theme of his, but we're going to move into uh, what is known commonly as the Sermon on the Mount. I'll qualify that a little bit later on, and particularly what are known as the Beatitudes, and we'll explain a little bit about that. But you know something I was thinking as we were, or as Byron was playing that song during um, friendship time, you know, there's joy in the blood. <laughs> if, if you don't understand the power of God, that really seems upside down, doesn't it? There's joy in the blood of the lamb. I mean, I mean, what does that mean? I sound a little hot up here, um, getting a little bit of a, of a reverb, so maybe you want to yeah, turn me down a bit. I don't want to blast you out because I'm just getting going, okay? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, nice, I'm, not, I'm nice and quiet now, but the volume is going to raise as we get through this. Um, but, but nonetheless, it, it's, if we're going to understand the Beatitudes, if we're going to understand the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and in fact, if we're going to understand anything in Scripture, it is all predicated on the power of God. It is the power of God that makes this make sense. I mean, when Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, I mean, the only way you're really going to comprehend that is by understanding it through the presence of the power of God. And just as a little silly exercise, and I know this is really silly, but you know, it's a point, and, and I hope that it sounds ultra ridiculous the person that, I mean, that that's my my objective in doing this can you imagine luke's gospel so far without the power of god and there are a lot of people who do this who just really desupernaturalize scripture but can you imagine the stories that he has been telling us to this point without the power of god i mean let's go back to the nativity an old man gets his wife pregnant. You know, obviously we know it's not the power of God. It can't be that they're past the time of having children. So Luke stretches it a little bit and all of a sudden the, a man gets his wife pregnant. And then six months later in another part of Israel, a teenage girl gets pregnant and she's not married. Well, certainly we understand that. But what about all the stuff about being a virgin and, and, and the angels coming? Well, we discount all of that because we know that it doesn't happen because 
because we're eliminating the power of God from the entire equation. Well, the two women get together and they talk about their babies. There's nothing unusual about that. The older woman has her child, a son, and he turns out to be of absolutely no account. He disappears, moves out to the desert, eats bugs and honey, and goes around babbling about some kind of religious thing that's going to happen. Nobody pays any attention to him whatsoever. He's going to get his head uh, removed a little bit later on. And, and the other son, I mean, when the other girl, the, 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 the peasant girl from Nazareth has her child, she can't even find a house to have it in. She's going to deliver that child in the midst of animals in a stable. And the only people who are going to come to recognize that child on that night happen to be the lowest level of society that you can get. Nothing but a bunch of scallywags as far as the shepherds are concerned. Now, we don't learn much about that child in those early stages, but we do learn that he's a little bit rebellious and disobedient. I mean, he takes off when his parents leave, he slips away, and he does what he wants to do, and it really causes them a tremendous amount of anxiety. Now, I just ask you, that's the nativity story in a nutshell. Do you think that's going to bless anyone? Do you think that story is going to live past the time that it is told? Because there's nothing in there of any importance to anyone. Well, it doesn't get any better as Jesus continues. He becomes an itinerant preacher. And every place he goes, he makes people mad. He goes back to his hometown of Nazareth and preaches and offends them so much that they want to throw him over a cliff. So he has to relocate and he goes to a town called Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee and he begins to preach there. And every single time he does, he offends someone. Now, there is a respectable religious community there. And they are the well-to-do, they are well-trained and educated. And everything that this Jesus says seems to contradict what they say. And you know something that's worse? It's the kind of people that he hangs out with. Prostitutes, tax gatherers, terrorists, no less. And in fact, he makes some of them his disciples. There's not a single intellectual in the group. And, and, and he does things like disobey the Sabbath laws and he, he eats and drinks when he should be fasting. I mean, he has no money, he has no possessions, he has no home, he has no resources, he has no real followers, and yet he presumes to tell us what God says. And that's where it really gets unusual. Because this man who is called a blasphemer and an apostate and a heretic by all the local people, he comes and he says, blessed are you if you're poor. Blessed are you if you're hungry. Blessed are you if you're miserable. Blessed are you if everyone hates you. <laughs> now, what kind of teaching is that? If you remove the power of God. Do you see this? Do you see that everything that Jesus has done, everything that Luke has reported, everything that is in the Gospels and everything that is in Scripture as a whole is predicated on the power of God because it's the power of God occupying that teaching that makes it so powerful and so poignant to us. Yes, blessed are you if you're poor, but only in the way that Jesus means it and only if you're blessed because of the power of God. So in other words, this is an upside-down kingdom. This is upside-down teaching. And you're not going to understand it in any way, form, or fashion unless you see it in the fact that it is predicated on the power of God. We're going to kind of 
try to keep that as we go through. I, I hope that seemed totally ridiculous, if not a little bit irreverent to you. Because, unfortunately, that's the way many people try to look at the Gospels, but at the same time to interject some kind of meaning there. If, if, if this isn't God, if this isn't the Son of God, then this doesn't mean anything. We're wasting our time. We might as well go home. As Paul says, we are, we are the most pitiful group of people that ever lived. But you know that's not true, don't you? You know that this is all about the power of God. You know that this is no ordinary child. That this is God incarnate in human form. And he has come to seek and save the lost. He has come to redeem us. He has come to teach us the ethical standards and the redemptive plan of God. And everything that he says is significant. And this group of disciples that are obscure and unimportant, they're the most important men who have ever lived besides Jesus. And so therefore this all has deep meaning. But it all has meaning when it is predicated. On the power of God. We'll bring that out as we go along. Now, let's put the fic- fiction of, aside. You know, I don't even, didn't even like to do that. It wasn't my favorite opening uh, introduction, but I, I, I hope it was, uh, it, it was meaningful. Because um, where we are in, in, in Luke's book is squarely in the middle of the power of God. All through the nativity story, the angels attesting, and God himself attesting, and the kind of God coming down. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets to his ministry, and he starts working mighty miracles to authenticate who he is. And most recently, we have just seen him go up on top of a mountain and pray, and then choose his disciples. And I kind of want to start there because that's significant. Jesus has gone up on top of a mountain somewhere near Capernaum and he's prayed all night long, communing with God his Father. This will be important a little bit later on, especially in the after church, actually. We're going to deal with it more there. But he goes up on top of the mountain and then after praying all night, he calls his disciples, a whole bunch of them, to him and then he chooses 12 out of those, 11 of whom will be the very foundation of the church that he leaves behind. And then in a very important imagery, he descends from the mountain to a level spot, and that is where he begins to work mighty miracles, both healing the infirm and casting out demons. All right, so we see him authenticating himself prior to sitting down and beginning to teach. And so this morning, we are going to see him actually in the process of that teaching as he begins in what we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I kind of need to qualify that because not everyone agrees with me. Not everyone sees this as the Sermon on the Mount. Quite often, you're going to see it referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. And the reason for that, we discussed this last week, is that when Jesus comes down and he stands on a level place, that word in Greek actually is the word for plain. And some people think this is more like Mark, where he actually goes and has a preaching session literally by the sea. And so there are many people who think that. But I'm going to make the point that, no, I believe that this is indeed the Sermon on the Mount. Even though some of the, uh, of, of, of the facts are a little bit different, I, I don't think that they're in conflict here. And let me tell you why this is important first. The reason it is important is, and let me just give you an example, in this beatitude, okay, in, in, in what he first starts out. Luke says, blessed are you if you're poor. Okay, blessed are you, 
poor. That's really what it says in the Greek underneath it. Uh, and, and Matthew has a little bit different. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So Matthew seems to be talking in a spiritual nature, and, and then Luke can be misunderstood. Luke could be understood by a lot of people and by Roman Catholic theologians, for instance. It is understood as a virtue that Jesus is actually saying physical poverty is a virtue. Now, here's, here's my point as far as whether this is a Sermon on the Mount or not. If this is what many people think is just another teaching, another sermon, Sermon on the Plain, or that Luke is just collecting different teachings that Jesus made during his ministry and sort of putting them together, then it's not important that it harmonizes with what Matthew says. Uh, it, It could be the same kind of teaching, but just in a slightly different vein. But if this is indeed the Sermon on the Mount... And Matthew sort of gives us a little bit better of a look at what Jesus is saying, explains it for us, then we are justified in harmonizing what Luke says with what um, Matthew says and finding that they're the same thing. Now, some of you, or maybe not some of you, but certainly many scholars would say, wait a minute, you're creating a conflict by doing that because the words are different. And, and, and by saying that this is indeed the Sermon on the Mount, you are creating an unnecessary conflict. It's obviously a separate sermon. Well, if that's the way you think, I've got a little exercise for you. Okay, don't do it now. Just, just do it when you go home. Time yourself and read Matthews 5 through 7. Okay, the entire Sermon on the Mount. Then time yourself and read Luke 6, 20 through 49 you'll find out that Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount takes you about seven to ten minutes to read. And that Luke's version will take you less than two minutes to read. Now, in your wildest imagination, do you think that Jesus ever taught for two minutes? Do you ever think that he actually talked for seven minutes? I mean, if the feeding of the 5,000 is an indication, he preached all day long. Hours and hours. That's the reason they're kind of worried about the people because they've been there listening to Jesus preach for hours. And so whether it's Matthew or whether it's Luke, they're both summations. So the words don't have to be exact and they can still be talking about the same thing. Now, all that said, I'm going to make the point later on when we get to looking at these specific words. I'm going to make the point later on that even without Matthew... You really can't interpret this, what he says here, as speaking of the virtue of physical poverty. It's just not, it's just not in what he says at all. Um, now, there's one other thing. And if you're visiting with us, you don't know what the after church is. We kind of hang around. Not everybody. A lot of people just go home. But we, we have what we call the after church. And, and the after church is a time of deeper reflection on what we learn in, in the, the time of the, the message. You get to ask questions. And quite often, like right now, I'm going to come across something that is a really beautiful fact or a beautiful discussion that I just don't have time to talk about when we're having the message. And, 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 and part of that is is the symbolism, the Old Testament symbolism of what's happening. Now, I touched on it when we were taking the Lord's Supper and we, we, re, we repeated the Ten Commandments. But there is a corollary, a very close association between Moses and the Exodus story and Jesus and what's going on here. 
In other words, Moses went up to Mount Sinai. He communed with God. God provided him with his word. He descended the mountain and he talks to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he shares with them the word of God, mighty power of God being expressed all through that. Jesus is doing the same thing. He goes up on top of the mountain. He communes with God, his father, all night long. He calls his disciples and chooses 12, not 12 patriarchal tribes, but 12 disciples, 11 of whom will be the foundation of the church. Then he descends from that mountain and then he delivers. First of all, he shows us power, the power of God through his healing. And then he delivers the word of God to the people, this time the 12 apostles and the others. And so there's a, and there's more to it than that, but there is a close symbolism that exists between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and neither one of those stories make any sense unless they are predicated on the power of God, because it is God who makes it a real story and not just a myth. And, and, and so that just kind of gives you an overview of the Sermon on the Mount and why we're going to see it as such. So let, let me just give you three statements, uh, and, and this will hold true for our, uh, the entire time we look at this. First of all, first statement is simply this, that I believe that this is indeed the same sermon that Matthew reports in chapters 5 through 7 of his gospel. And so therefore, we will refer to it going forward as the Sermon on the Mount. The second thing that um, I think that is important is that I see this as a single sermon, not as a collection of teaching that Jesus did throughout time. But he sat down and he taught through this. Uh, Matthew's a, a better, a fuller uh, representation of it. But nonetheless, Luke is the same sermon. This is a sermon. And then thirdly, because of the first two, we will uh, feel perfectly justified in harmonizing the two accounts. And we will find insight in, for instance, what Matthew says to help us understand what Luke says. And with that, um, uh, let's turn our attention to the text. Now, there's one other kind of uh, overview thing, but it actually starts the text. So um, we'll deal that when we look at it, starting in verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said... Now, that phrase, lifted up his eyes, um, means he fixed his gaze upon. So, we talked an awful lot, or at least we did last week, about the crowd that is there. And, and, And we identified the various aspects of that crowd. First of all, there are the 12, the apostles that he has just appointed. But also, there was a great crowd of disciples. Now, we talked about disciples are kind of of two nature. There are the true disciples, the true followers of Jesus. They just don't have the power of the apostles. But they're also disciple wannabes, disciples who are there and are going to actually leave Jesus later on when the going gets tough. But then there's also the people, a great multitude of people. So there's a ton of people there, and we talked about the people, and even though probably there are some disciples yet to be in that crowd, there are also the curiosity seekers and the thrill seekers that are just there to look for another miracle. And then, of course, the ever-present antagonist, the 
Pharisees and scribes who are there. But nonetheless, here, Luke tells us that Jesus fixed his gaze on the disciples. Now, who, is that the 12 or is that the larger crowd of disciples? Well, he doesn't tell us, so we don't know for sure. But let me tell you what I think. I, I, I think that he, he starts this out with these first four, at least the, the wheel part, which is the, the blessing part. And then he's going to go right into a woe part, which we'll get to next week. But he, he, he starts out with his gaze fixed on the, 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 the apostles and the disciples who would follow right behind them. So in other words, there's something more in what he starts out saying. Later on, it's going to be absolutely clear. He's talking to the whole crowd. He's talking to everybody, especially when he gets into the woes. But here at the beginning, in these blessings, there is something that is meaningful to the disciples and will be, I think, helpful as they go forward. And again, we don't know for sure, but what it looks like to me is Jesus is, first of all, he's saying, blessed are you because you have walked away from all earthly possessions. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But secondly, he says, I just want to remind you, as, or as, as if he's saying, I just want to remind you where your power is going to come from. Okay, it's not going to come from you. Salvation is not going to come from you. When you take this gospel out and you start telling the world, the world is going to change, but it's not going to be because of you. It is all predicated on the power of God. And he's drilling that in, I think, into what he says. Okay, with that sort of a expansive overview, let's look at this first of the Beatitudes. And, and in doing so... I I, I want to look at two words and one phrase. And I think if I look at just the two words and define them and the phrase, then the true meaning of this beatitude will come out very, very strongly. The two words are simply this. The meaning of the word blessed, the meaning of the word poor, and the meaning of the phrase, for yours is the kingdom of God. And I think if we define those, we're going to be a long way towards understanding that not just this beatitude, but the rest of them as well. So let's start with that word blessed. Now, we've we've seen it many times that sometimes it is helpful when you're trying to define something that is commonly misunderstood, which this word is, it sometimes is good to start out talking about what it doesn't mean. So let's start talking about what this doesn't mean. You go way back into some of the early English translations, and the word was translated happy. Happy are you, poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Well, Dr. Sproul says this about that. He, He says that this is an absolutely horrible distortion of what blessedness is in Scripture. It doesn't mean happy. Dr. Kennedy would often say that happiness depends on happenstance. And if things are going well, you're happy. If things are going poorly, you're not. Well, the blessedness that we have here transcends your circumstances. So it's absolutely not a statement of uh, of meaning that you're happy. Uh, But also, it's what's happened to that word. 
The pursuit of happiness has become a fundamental right, regardless of what that pursuit entails, no matter how wretched or wicked it is. It is my sovereign right to pursue happiness. And therefore, that defines the life of so many moderns. It is the pursuit of happiness and tragically never finding it. Well, it is not the pursuit of personal happiness that we're talking about. That has a very base kind of connotation to it, a very self-centered, self-aggrandizing type of approach. So that's not at all what the word means. Secondly, it doesn't mean, um, and often this is used to teach our children, it's not the B attitudes, Okay, it goes beyond attitude. I mean, in fact, that's just kind of an English, we're Englishizing uh, that word. Is that a word, Englishizing or Anglicizing? Well, whatever. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of adding a meaning that it really doesn't have. Now, that might be helpful to children to put it forth as the be attitudes. These are good attitudes for you to be. But actually, it is exp- that's expressing the opposite of what is being expressed by the word here, and, and, and therefore can be damaging to the understanding of those we ones when they go forward. Because what that sounds like is that what Jesus is saying is that if you try really hard and strive for this attitude, poverty or uh, 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 righteousness or what, whatever it is, then you'll be blessed. So, so the blessing is dependent on what you do. Well, that is actually quite opposite of what this means. So, so let's, let's talk about what does this word blessed mean? Well, the, the word comes from, the whole idea of the Beatitudes comes from the Latin meaning of the word beatus. And that's a translation of a Greek word that is quite important in Scripture, makarios. Don't don't follow my pronunciation of Greek because I didn't learn pronunciation. I I learned how to read it, okay? Um, But but nonetheless, it's an important word. um, And and let's delve into it just a wee bit. Um, It's grounded or rooted in um, wisdom literature, For instance, you can go back to Psalm. The very first Psalm, the very first word in the Psalms is, in Greek, the Greek version, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You'll notice that he's not saying, now he is indeed holding this kind of a person up as an example, but he's not saying you will be blessed if this is who you are. He's saying that that person who is like that is blessed. It's a state of being. You are in a state of blessedness. So what Jesus is saying here is those who are poor in the idea of the way he's expressing it are blessed. They are in a state of blessedness. They might not have anything to do with that state of blessedness, but they are blessed because of the state that they are in. Now, later on, we begin to see sort of an eschatological uh, flair to it. In, in other words, sometimes it is used to talk about a difference between the state you are in right now, or at least the state you might perceive yourself to be in, and a state that will occur later on. In the book of Daniel, he talks about the providence of God, and he says, blessed is he who waits 
waits for that to come about. And of course, in the book of Revelation, the promises of the blessing we will receive, like blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those are things that will happen in the future. So there's an eschatological sense to the blessedness that we see. But by the time that Luke wrote this, there, there's an, another sort of nuance to this word. And, and, and it's that it represents religious joy in the here and now. That not just in the not yet, not just the eschatological idea of blessedness, but there's blessedness that brings about religious joy Right now. I mean, just look down at verse 22, the, the fourth of these. And this is what we read. Blessed are you when people hate you. Really? I mean, who wants to be hated? Uh, but let's finish it. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, So, for so their fathers did to the prophets. That means that there is not just a religious joy from being blessed that is only in the treasure you attain in heaven, that there is a blessedness right now. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, this is a blessedness that makes no sense unless it is predicated on the power of God. In our Wednesday night study of Acts, we are almost to the place where we're going to read this. Peter and the disciples by the Sanhedrin are beaten severely with rods and told not to preach in the name of Jesus. And we read this, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They're rejoicing and happy because they got beaten. Now, that doesn't make any sense to the unbeliever. It doesn't make any sense to the world. And it doesn't make any sense to us unless it's predicated on the power of God because it's the power of God that they're getting their joy, you see? Now, that, I, I, I didn't mention it, but just because we can't translate this word as happiness or happy doesn't mean that there's not a degree of happiness that is involved with this. And this is where it comes from. This is the secret to happiness. People are looking for happiness. And you're never going to find it short of a relationship with your creator. There's going to be a hole in you forever unless it is filled with the only one who can fill it. And that is God through Jesus Christ. That's true happiness. And that happiness doesn't depend on your happenstance. That happiness is a blessedness. So sure, blessed are you if you are indeed blessed in that way. So that's the, 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 that's the, the, the meaning of that word blessed and what it means. Now let's move on to the next one and talk about the word poor because I, can't, I think that's where most of the misunderstanding is. And brothers and sisters, this, this is kind of the core of this morning's message, so sort of pay attention. What do you think Jesus means when he said, blessed are you poor? In what context is he using the word poor? Now, we've already talked about whether it's physical or spiritual, so let's just forget that for now. Let's just kind of consider that it could be either way. And to a degree, it is. There is a physical aspect to this, but it is all wrapped up in the spiritual. But, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, um, I thought I knew what poor was. 
There was a, a little boy in my class, uh, and, you know, he didn't have any of the things that we had. His parents drove a real old beat-up car, barely ran. He, he had patches on his jeans, and his shoes were all scuffed up, never got an extra pair. Had a very small lunch every week, and he would carefully wrap up the, pay, the, the, the sack and, and put it in his pocket and take it home and use the same sack over and over again. And, and, and I, I was concerned. Even at that age, I had compassion, so I I asked my mom, well, well, well what's, what's with him? How come he doesn't have the things that we have? And she said, well, son, he's poor. So I, I thought that was poverty, actually. And then we grew up, and Kay and I used to like to drive around in the countryside around Memphis in those days. That was sort of our occupation, uh, our, our entertainment. And in those days, there were still tenement farmers. There were still sharecroppers in, in, in those days. And, and I began to realize that I really didn't understand what poverty was. I mean, this is real poverty. People who live in shacks with absolutely nothing. And then I started going to Haiti and places like that. And I realized that I really had no clue what poverty was. So there, there, there's many different meanings to the word poverty, many different levels but, but it, is, it, it is said that at the time of Jesus, 90% of the people living in Galilee were under the poverty level. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus wouldn't have been part of that group because his father was a carpenter. That would make him part of the artisan class. But 90% of the people who were there were what we would call dirt poor. I mean, they were subsistence farmers trying to make the living out of the, the land. And if the rain didn't fall, the land didn't produce. And then, of course, you had people like Herod. Now, Herod the Great is gone, but this is Herod Antipas. And he followed in the footsteps of his father. He had building projects going on all over Galilee, palatial homes for himself and the rest of the people are taxed almost out of existence. And on top of that, the Romans were taxing. So the people were extremely poor, but that's still not what the word means. The word actually comes from a verb in the Greek that means to cringe or to cower in fear. It's to be terrified of your situation. And so the kind of poverty that Jesus uses here is a desperate uh, a poverty that you cannot possibly pull yourself up by your, your bootstraps. It, it is impossible. It is a poverty that consumes you. It would be the kind of poverty, for instance, that uh, someone who was lame and, and could not provide for themselves or and, and they had to sit in, in, in the temple gates or someone who was, again, under the oppression of someone else and could not possibly ever help themselves. That's the kind of poverty that the word denotes. Now, there's three aspects of this word I want you to see. This is really important, okay? So kind of listen. The first I've just shared with you, and that is that it is an abject poverty, a complete kind of poverty, the kind of poverty that it is impossible to free yourself from. It is a poverty that will exist as long as you're alive. But the second aspect of it, is that it's the kind of poverty that the only way that someone who is living in that kind of poverty can exist is by the benevolence of someone else. So they're beggars. 
That's the only way that they can possibly make it through life. And of course, in the, in the New Testament, we see beggars everywhere. They're at the gates of the city. They're at the gates of the temple. And Jesus has quite a lot to do with those who are begging the man born lame that Peter and John uh, saved, the, the, the blind. These are beggars and they cannot possibly make any money on their own. And so they are totally dependent on the grace of others. The benevolence of others. They cannot help themselves, so they must depend on others to provide the basic necessities of life. And the third aspect is probably most important for where we're headed with this. I hope you can see where I'm headed. But the third one is that they know it. There's a realization of their poverty. There's a realization that their poverty is so profound and so deep and comes from sources so out of their control that there's nothing that they can do but beg. And so they set about to the begging. In other words, they're fully and completely aware. None of them are living in denial. I'm really not poor. You know, you hear that all the time. People say, I didn't know I was poor until people told me I was poor. Well, no, these people knew they're poor. They knew that if they didn't have the benevolence of someone else, that, that, that they were going to die. Okay? Now, nowhere in Scripture is that presented as a virtue. Now, there are virtues that come from poverty. I mean, people who are desperately poor, they don't seem to put as much importance on their money because they don't have any. And, and so they have a lot more time for the kingdom of God than those who just seem to have an awful lot of money. And that's their whole focus in life. But guess what? Most of the people who were poor, if they had the opportunity to follow money, they would do so. Because they would think that their happiness depends on money like everybody else does. But there's no place in scripture anywhere where that is presented to us as a virtue. So that's why I say, even without Matthew showing us that there's a spiritual side to this, even without Matthew, there's no way that we can see this as a a mandate for self-imposed poverty. That it's a virtue for me to to have nothing, to be a monk or to be a nun, or or in some way disavow all my earthly possessions. You may do that so that you can follow Jesus, and that is a wonderful thing to do, because then you have a spiritual reason for doing it. But the physical poverty in and of itself is never anywhere considered to be a virtue. Poverty has an awful lot to do with what we learn in Scripture. Jesus says that the poor are always going to be with us. We, as Christians, have a responsibility to the poor, and we know know that God has a special place in his heart for the poor. But none of that is the justification of self-imposed poverty. So we realize that there's no way that, that Luke can be talking about physical poverty. In fact, look at it this way. If Luke is talking about physical poverty and that he says, blessed are you, poor, because you're poor, then as your spiritual leader and shepherd, it is my responsibility to make sure that you are blessed. So I'm going to stand out in the narthex and just take your purses and take your wallets and give me all of your money. Give me your checking account. I will rid you of every single temptations not to be poor because I would be adding to your blessing, wouldn't I? Funny, I 
Nobody is agreeing with that. I don't, I, I'm not hearing any amens there, so I guess, the, I guess that's not going to work. Uh, but you see the point. It, it's never considered to be a virtue. So obviously, Luke is talking about the same thing Matthew is talking about. He's talking about spiritual poverty. And that when Jesus says, blessed are you poor, he's talking about blessed are you who we can take those three meanings of the word and apply it to. Okay? So let's just do that. If we're talking about spiritual poverty, the first thing, it is a poverty that is so deep and so complete that there is no way that you can work your way out of it. Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, not that you are sick, not that you are disabled, not that you are incapable, but you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And dead people can't do anything. Dead people cannot help themselves. They cannot raise themselves up by their own bootstraps. And so therefore, that is the picture that we get of what it means to be spiritually poor. It is a destitute poverty. It is a complete poverty. And it is a poverty from which you can never escape. And the bad thing about your spiritual poverty is that it will condemn you. You will face the wrath of God and an eternity in hell unless something is done about it. And you can't do it yourself. It is predicated on the power of God. Second thing we learned about the word poor is that the only way out of that is to beg. The only way out of that is if someone will extend you grace. Okay? See, Paul continues to the Ephesians and he says, For it is By grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. That salvation is predicated on the power of God and the power of God alone. You can't fix it, no matter how hard you try. But the third aspect, now both of those are absolutes. But the third aspect is the one that, boy, this is really where the rubber hits the road. You have to know it. You see? You have to realize that you actually are incapable of saving yourself because only those who recognize that they're incapable of saving themselves are going to turn to the only one who can save them. I can't fix this on my own. God and God alone can fix it for me. So I turn to him in belief and in faith and I believe in him as both Lord and Savior. Jesus himself said, we just read it not long ago in Luke, I didn't come to save the self-righteous. I didn't come to save all you people who think that you're already saved and you don't need a Savior. I came to save the sinners. I came to save those who know that they're desperate, who know they can't save themselves, who are beggars turning to me and asking for me to save them. Those are the ones I came to save. So therefore, once again, we see, and this is hugely important, it's all predicated on the power of God. It doesn't make any sense unless it is predicated on God's power because God is the one who has the power to save. It is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what that publican, we'll read it later in Luke, 19th chapter, pounding on his chest in, in, in the temple. And he's the one who is saying, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I know I'm lost. The Pharisee doesn't know he's lost. Only one of them are going to go down justified. It's the man who knows that he's lost and turns to Jesus through the power of God to save him. There is no other way. No other way for salvation. 
So it's kind of important the way we interpret that word poor. <laughs> and, and then the phrase, for yours is the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God, uh, I mean, that's a huge subject. You know it. We're, we're, we're not going to cover it ever in one sitting. Um, Luke's whole book is about it. And so we're looking at it from a variety of different ways. But let me just kind of give you a, a sort of a, 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 of a broad brush definition of what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is the rule of God through Christ, both in the here and now and in the not yet. The rule meaning the sovereign power manifest by God through Christ right now in the here and now and in the not yet, meaning for all eternity. That's kind of the broad understanding of the kingdom of God. So now we have to ask ourselves the question, so in what way is the kingdom of God, as Jesus says, yours, but he's talking to his disciples And if you're a disciple here this morning, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, then that means he's talking to you. So in what way is the kingdom of God ours? I mean, in what way? That's possessive. Yours is the kingdom of God. Now... One, just one brief um, sort of, of uh, form, uh, looking at the form of these Beatitudes. You'll notice in all four of them, they all start with the word blessed. And then they all have sort of a, a, a current condition. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are the ones who weep, blessed are the ones who are hated. Blessed in this current state, but then there's this future where whatever it is in the current is changed and the blessedness will become much more pronounced. In other words, blessed if you're hungry, well, you'll be fulfilled. Blessed if you are weeping, well, then you're going to laugh. Blessed are those of you who are hated now, well, you've got great reward in heaven. But notice the first one here. Notice that it's in the present. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. It's not just saying... Yours will be the kingdom of God. You have look to look forward to the kingdom of God. But he says, blessed are you because yours is in the present as well as in the future. So once again, what does he mean by that? In what way is the kingdom of God ours? Well, let me tell you what it's not. You don't own it. Sorry. You know, it is exactly what it says. The kingdom of God is God's kingdom. He owns it, right? And now, in a sense, we own it, but no. Underneath it, it is God who owns the kingdom of heaven. It is his. He created it. He's the sovereign master over all things. By the same token, you don't rule it. It's not that we're going to... Now, in a way, we'll rule it, but I mean, seriously, it's God's kingdom, so he rules it. And we know that Jesus Christ has been coronated uh, Lord of all, and so therefore, he's king of kings and lord of lords, and he rules it. In a sense, we will too, but not in the real sense, because it is his kingdom and he rules it. And in fact, brothers and sisters... You know, this is a shock to some people. I don't think to any of you. It's really not about you in the first place. The kingdom of God is not about you getting there. It's not about the eternity that you will spend. The kingdom of God is about God and His glory. And the fact that your salvation glorifies Him. And all things that happen ultimately are His glory. And when we go to heaven, we're going to spend an eternity glorifying the name of God. So, with all that said, how is it possible that the kingdom is ours? Well, let me explain. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, what that means, 
is that the kingdom of God will be entirely, 100% made up of the poor. The poor in the way that Luke has just defined it, the way we defined it earlier, the meaning of that word poor, the abject poverty, the poverty that we must beg, and the poverty that turns us to Jesus Christ as Savior, and the, and, 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 and the, and the poverty that um, uh, causes us to realize our need for that Savior. And so therefore, therefore the, the kingdom of God is filled with those. In, in other words, there's no one there who is not filled, is not, I'm sorry, is no one there who is not the poor. In other words, no adulterers, no idolaters, no sinners, no blasphemers, blasphemers. They're not going to be in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a spiritual house made up of living stones. And each and every living stone that makes up the spiritual house is going to be the kind of poor that Jesus just expressed to us. No one else is ever going to be there. And I'm talking in a human sense because, of course, we know there's angels and others that are there. But in a human sense, the kingdom of God is made up, built up with, made from or with the poor. Use Matthew's words, poor in spirit. Now, I don't know if that hits you the way that it hits me. But that is just another way of saying, as Jesus is going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because I am the only one in the power of God that I wield. I am the only one who can turn you from a condemned sinner to a redeemed sinner. And so therefore, without me, you will not be in the kingdom of God. So it can never possibly be yours. And that's the exclusivity. It's not a, we all get there just because we're good people. We're actually not good people. And we won't get there unless it is through the blood of Jesus Christ. So, how do we process this? And I don't have much time, uh, but let, let me see if I can just process it real quickly. And, and whenever you have something like this, you need to process it both as a an unbeliever, what it means to those who really don't know Jesus, and then again to those who do. And to those who don't know Jesus, we really need to concentrate on the, the, the word poor and the blessedness of that poverty. And, and for those who do know Jesus, we need to understand a little bit more about what it means to wield the power of of God, which I think is what Jesus is, is making clear to his disciples. First of all, for those who don't know Jesus, and you may be here in this sanctuary this morning, you may be watching, you may be watching now, you may be watching 10 years from now if God gives us that kind of longevity. But here's what I want to point, and I realize, I realize that this does not make sense, that it is upside down, but this is an upside down kingdom. I realize that to be poor and to be hungry and to be miserable and to be hated is not what our culture teaches, but it only makes sense when it is predicated on the power of God. And so if indeed God is bringing you out of that darkness into his marvelous light, if indeed you recognize that there's something wrong inside, you've tried religion, you've tried wealth, you've tried whatever it is in this world that is supposed to bring you happy and it's all falling flat and you feel that you're, you're, you're enthralled with this, well then let me point out the three things that we have learned. The first two are absolutes and you can't change them. Just the fact that you deny Naim does not mean you can change them. The fact that, first of all, we are all 
desperately, spiritually dead. We cannot save ourselves. We have the most profound spiritual poverty that cannot simply be ever, ever be fixed on our own. And that makes us beggars. And that is what is so important is to go to Christ as a beggar and say, Dear Lord, drop to your knees, repent of your sins and say, Dear Lord, save me. And mean it from the bottom of your heart. You see, that's the third thing. And that's not a given. The other two are absolutes. They don't change whether you believe them or not. The third one is not a given. You must know. You must have an understanding. You must repent. You must turn to Him. You must recognize that you need a Savior and that you cannot possibly save yourself. That everything as far as salvation in Christianity is concerned is predicated on the power of God. So only God can save you. And I hope that if, if that makes sense to you, that you drop to your knees even now. You don't have to do it physically, but in your head, drop to your knees and repent and beg and ask Jesus to save you. And if you mean it from the bottom of your heart, I can tell you on the authority of Scripture, he will. Because he promises that he will. But the other group, and I think this covers most of us here this morning, and I certainly pray it does, are the believers. Now, now how are we to process these and the other ideas that we're going to see in this uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount? And especially as we begin to talk about the upside-down nature of this and the importance of the power of God in, in, in that. Because after all, how do we wield the power of God? Well, when we start talking about that, folks, we've got, we're walking a real narrow road with a ditch on either side, and they're pretty profound ditches. The ditch on the left says that, well, I'm not really feeling, you know, the Spirit. I'm not really feeling God right now, so I need to manufacture that feeling in some sense. I need to help God along, whether it is the liturgy of a church, whether it is legalism, whether it is my own personal piety, whether on the other end of the spectrum I create an environment in which I am all sentimental and emotional, and I feel that the Spirit is going to fill that. I mean, He's not powerful enough to come on His own. I have to create through music and lights and other things a medium whereby he will come. The Spirit doesn't work that way. The Spirit is around us and he works on his own. And we don't need to be trying to make the Spirit do what we want him to do. In that sense, we need to step aside and let the Spirit do what the Spirit does. Let God be God, folks. You do a miserable job of being God. God does a great job of being God because he is God. You're not, and so you just do it terribly. And yet so much of Christendom is trying, in one way or another, to either invoke or to replace or to define the power of God. The power of God works as God will work. But you see, there's a ditch on the other side, too. And I think this is a ditch that so many Reformed people fall into. Because we say, okay, God is sovereign, God's power is the only power that's going to work, so I'm just going to kind of sit down, find myself an easy chair, and I'm going to watch the parade go by. You know, I'm going to wait till Jesus comes home or I go to him because I'm not going to get in the way and, and, and to, uh, uh, to interrupt the power of God. Well, it doesn't work that way either. That's just as deep of a ditch as the one on the left. In the after church, I'm going to talk a little bit about the different... Uh, the, the, the different biblical understandings of poverty 
and there's four, and there's only one that is universally condemned in Scripture. Can you imagine what that is? It's the poverty that's brought on by laziness. It's the poverty that is brought on by indolence, by not doing. Not doing because you're waiting for the power of God to do it is not an option. You see, you don't want to be God, but at the same token, you don't want to just sit around and do nothing because God has given you things to do. Now, now, now here's the way it works, folks. God manifests his power in the work of his saints when the, work of it, when the saints are doing the work of the kingdom. He manifests his power through us in the things that he has given us to do. If you're looking for a magic bullet, I don't have one. If you're looking for something new, I don't have one. These are the means of grace. These are the things that God has given us to do. His power is manifested in our prayer and the prayers of the church. When we corporately get together in prayer, his power is manifested in that. It occupies our prayers in a sense. Power is manifested in the study and the learning and the memorization and the faithful preaching and teaching of the Word of God. This is the power of God for salvation, Paul says in that gospel. It is the power of evangelism. It is the power that changes people's lives. And so therefore, when we focus on and hold up and exalt the Word of God, we are doing what God has called us to do and His power is manifest through that. His power is manifest through our corporate worship when we gather together like this to worship and glorify Him. His power is manifest in the faithful observance of the sacraments. His power is manifest in our missions and our outreach. His power is manifest in our, our, our global and local diaconate, the benevolence, the looking after those with less than we have. His power is manifest in the very things, the kingdom activities that He has given to us to do. Uh, that's not rocket science. So I want to leave you with just these two statements. On the one hand, let's step aside. I'm not saying step back or sit down. I'm saying step aside and let God be God. And then let us get about the work of the kingdom that God has called us to be. And I, if, if, again, if I have a life first, this is it. But it is all just beautifully summarized in one verse out of Matthew. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And you know this. And all these things will be added unto you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the, um, the depth that you give us in just a few words. And, and, and that's why we really have to kind of dig into them because these are diamonds. They're not laying on the surface. They have to be dug for. And, and, and I pray that we have all had our attention focused on you and that we will recognize the degree to which your power is necessary in all that we do. And we will recognize your sovereignty and we will be obedient to that in all that we do. And that we will focus on the things that you have left us to do. You have not been silent and you haven't caused us to have to wonder what you've called us to do. It's just we're always trying to add to it or change it or modify it. Lord, help us to be true to your word. True and in that way be able to wield the power that you manifest through your church. We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.